0: Hello and welcome back to the Sleep Like a Baby podcast. Wow, it's been so long, I almost forgot how to do the intro here, but I'm Hannah, I'm an infant sleep consultant as well as a mum and I live and work in South East London. There we go, well it's actually not been that long, I think it's been about six months, but lots and lots has happened since that last podcast I put out with my mum back at the end of series two. I think when you listen back to that you can slightly hear in my voice that I was coming down with COVID and um, I was fine of course but I had one of those springs where it just felt like we were all sick just constantly and work was really busy and I just felt like I was constantly playing catch up with missed childcare and illness and not quite keeping my head above water. Also I was working on a super top secret uh, project behind the scenes, I was working like mad all summer and I'm really thrilled I can now finally talk about it um, and that project was my um, my first ever sleep guide that I I launched last month just a couple of weeks ago and honestly it was such a labour of love, I so loved creating it but... I was getting so impatient that it wasn't out yet because I've been writing it for well over a year but I really knuckled down particularly in the last six months and basically it covers naps and night times for the first 18 months of your baby's life and it's available now via my website and I also really wanted to make sure it was a digital version so you can read it as a series of PDFs, but also I've made an audio version, um, which is all included in the same the same price. It's all together, so you can choose to whether listen to it or read it. Because I know that oh my goodness, I mean even now, but definitely when my, my own baby was in the first 18 months of um of his life, I was not reading huge amounts. I was definitely someone who was listening to things whilst walking around the park willing him to nap so hey maybe that's what you're doing right now listening to this and um, anyway it, it covers a lot this guide it's really in depth so if you follow me on Instagram or you've you've listened to this podcast for a while and you like my content then the guide is a bit like having my whole Instagram account and podcast series all in one place on your phone with lots of searchable information and it gives way more like in-depth practical stuff that um I don't I don't go into as much on Instagram just because there's kind of never enough space and um yeah and I and I love Instagram I love giving things away for free obviously but um it's frustrating when you want to find something that someone said and you can't search their um their profile and you can't remember or find it so anyway it covers a lot it's really in depth um I cover like section one is all about the foundations of attachment brain development temperament um, and different parenting styles and then in the second section I go into loads of really like meaty stuff with sleep science and information about naps bedtime sleep rituals um how to safely co-sleep how to make Uh, changes as well though if that's where you're at because I wanted the guide to have lots of information and educational content about what normal infant sleep looks like but I also really want to help people make changes if that's what they need to do right now so for example if you're in your back is breaking because you're rocking to sleep or your baby you love the contact naps but you just want to be able to put your baby down to sleep sometimes how can you actually get there without leaving them to cry it out or do those sort of strict sleep training regimes? Um, you know, co-sleeping is such a brilliant thing. It's such a great strategy, but it's not for everyone. And sometimes we are done with certain things and we want to move away from it. So how can we do that? Or maybe you are, you've are you been the lead kind of caregiver on everything to do with sleep and your sort of your baby's Primary attachment figure, the preferred parent, but you'd really like to introduce another caregiver now so that you can sort of share the load a little bit more. So anyway, there's lots and lots of stuff in there, and then that the third and final section of the, of the guide, uh, not the final section, sorry. Then there's a whole section about troubleshooting. So basically, every week on Instagram, I do q and A, and every week, I was going through the Q and A questions, and I get a couple of hundred just making sure that all those kind of questions were definitely answered in the guide that you could really search for like proper questions and get real responses. And then actually the final section of the guide is actually about your sleep and how to support yourself through difficult periods with your child's keeping you up at night or you've got other stuff going on, how to support your sleep when your baby does start to sleep better but maybe you're experiencing some insomnia um how to regulate yourself in moments of, of stress and o- burnout and overwhelm and being touched out so I wanted to really make sure that the parents sleep and well-being was covered in this as well because I think sometimes as parents get overlooked um <laughs> when, when we talk about baby sleep and actually we're really important so yeah anyway that's um that's that's the sleep guide. I'm not going to bang on about it every week but I'm really proud of it and I've had such a lovely response to it so far. So thank you to everyone who's already purchased it. Um, The toddler version is not far away now either. Um, But anyway, that's my update. That's what I've been up to and now here we are, it's September. I've very much got that sort of back to school feeling and so I can't really I was thinking what better way to sort of first lesson of term for this podcast series than to speak to the amazing Greer Kirshenbaum from Nurture and Neuroscience Parenting. Because if you don't already know Greer, uh, she's the world's first ever neuroscientist doula and like, there's no point trying to hide it. I am an absolute super fan. I'll, I'll be really embarrassed if she listens to this, but I wanted to ask her to be on the podcast for. Ages, but I was too nervous to actually ask, Um, uh, because I'm not a neuroscientist. Like I'm, I think I got a C in GCSE biology, so I didn't want to ask stupid questions. But um, then I realised that actually everything I've ever read of hers is so um, incredibly accessible, and she makes so much sense that I realised I yeah, I just had to ask her. She was like number one, like dream guest. And, you know, I think that's why she has been so successful in the world of infant sleep is because she is an amazing communicator. She really explains the science of responsiveness and, um, nurturing caregiving so, so eloquently, so clearly, um, and she's always whenever I've read anything by her or listened to her speak I always feel so empowered afterwards like you know a client was saying to me the other day actually is that they always felt like responding and being there for their baby when they needed them was the right thing to do but when they then discovered that there was reasons why and that the science backed that up it was just like a real I guess what Oprah would call an aha moment and um I had so many of those moments just in this interview alone chatting to Gria. Um, I remember afterwards actually I kept remembering things that she'd said and it really like informed my own thinking about my parenting a lot. So I felt quite guilty that I was sitting on this interview for several months and not sharing it with the world because I think she says so many important things from, you know, we cover a lot from Childcare and maybe guilt that we might have over our children going into nursery or daycare or um but also like why you know the power of, of of responding to your child and how we build healthy resilient brains and why that's important and anyway let's just go for it let's I can't wait for you to hear it please let me know what you think um here we go episode one series three So, Gria, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? Oh, I'm so well. I'm
1: so happy to be here. Um, I've, you know, I think we and I have been chatting on Instagram for a couple of years,
0: maybe. Yeah.
1: So it's really, really wonderful to
0: meet you and, and be with you here today. Great. Right. So if people haven't come across you before, could you tell us a bit? Who are you? Yeah. How did you become, you know, who you are today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I started my journey, my career, I guess, I don't know, into this um, through research. So I started out, I really wanted to do, be a medical doctor. And I got this incredible opportunity to volunteer in a neuroscience laboratory, actually studying spinal cord injury um, in a gap year before college. And I just love neuroscience. I was like, oh, this is the perfect thing to study, you know, as I get ready to go to medical school. And so I I continued on to do an undergraduate degree in neuroscience and just loved it. And I was like, I think I want to stay in here and keep, keep uh, discovering more about neuroscience and research. So after that, I did a PhD in neuroscience and medical science and shifted my focus to, how experience and genetics contribute to mental health. And, and I was also really interested in learning and memory mechanisms of how experience change circuitry in the brain in a lasting way. And so kept on loving research. Um, I continued on to do a postdoctorate uh, fellowship at Columbia university. And towards the end, I actually think before that, but Throughout my research career I was always like how do we apply this like this information is so powerful and will change you know has the potential to make so much change how do we uh, apply this and so at the end of my postdoc I was sort of like do I go all in and you know attempt to become a professor and run my own laboratory or should I change um you know conversations about early life experience and mental health and and that was really really felt really, you know, important to me, like what, you know, we, we had already made these major discoveries in the lab about early life experience and mental health, and they weren't out there in the world. And so I thought either, you know, I stay in the lab and continue to, you know, discover more, and there's still so much more to learn, but I was really like, wow, we really already know enough. And it's not in the form of a pill. So it's not like, a pharmaceutical company is going to go out and like distribute this pill, so everyone gets the benefit of the research. It's information that is the preventative medicine here, and so it's a, requires something very different um, to bring this out. And so that's when I sort of dedicated my career to this—you know—science translation, communication, education. And I also trained as a birth and postpartum doula and started working with infant sleep to, um, you know, understand the people and um, support the people I want this information to get to. And so, yeah, now I'm marrying, you know, the neuroscience and the early life work with families. Um,
0: I love it. It's such a fascinating career path. Um, and yeah, I, I, I love everything that you talk about on your Instagram account, but obviously you also don't. Well, yeah. What else do you do? You train people to become, you know, you've got your own training program. You offer support to people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I, I work with a company, Babo Mia and we train, um, mostly perinatal professionals. So like doulas, people who only want to work with sleep, um, therapists, occupational therapists, Hopefully one day, doctors and nurses. Um, but but yeah, anyone who's working with families and gets questions about sleep and wants to help families with biologically normal sleep, we do a pretty extensive twelve module training to um, give people the skills to work with infant sleep as a we call it an infant and family sleep specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also gonna put out a smaller course really soon called an Infant and Family Sleep Professional for, for families, uh, for, so for professionals to just be able to educate families about normal infant sleep. So that's something I'm really passionate about is you know trying to spread the message as early as possible to families about the facts we have on infant sleep. And so that they're better equipped to make informed choices about infant sleep. And also better equipped, um, you know, to yeah, to support it. It try to change what's going on out there.
0: Yeah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's just I think informed choices are um, so important. And um, as I was telling you before we started recording, and I'll just do my kind of like really sycophantic bit, but um, you know, I came across you via a podcast with Kerry uh, Secker, who's also been a guest on this podcast, and. Um, I remember that conversation. I remember it really clearly. I was literally, well, I was in this kitchen where I'm recording the interview now with a baby who I was just obsessing over his sleep. And yeah. my head was full of these ideas of how much I was stopping him from sleeping the way he was supposed to be sleeping, apparently. Right. I was, I'd so absorbed this narrative that it was all my fault. <laughs> and, yeah. um, yeah if I could just toughen up or figure it out then I wouldn't be in you know I wouldn't be so tired or whatever and then hearing you and Kerry talk about all of the science and all of the biology and, ma- and neuroscience obviously um, it it just opened my mind up so much and it made so much sense because I felt like everything you said. Uh, and Kerry was saying was that it totally aligned with my thinking and my gut instincts, but you had all of the evidence as well to back it up, which I think that's so validating to hear.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where can I ask where, what, what were the sources of like infant sleep knowledge that you had before?
0: Oh God. So, um, uh, I had it was mainly Instagram I think Um, a friend of mine had when I was pregnant she forwarded me on a pdf of a well-known sleep training company
1: right
0: um who are very focused on a two-hour lunch nap and um, independent settling I think people probably know who that is um Mm -hmm. uh, and uh she said it to me when I was pregnant I thought oh I won't do that. I don't need that. That sounds, that sounds hysterical. And then my son being like 10 days old and me reading this like 85 page PDF word for word (laughs) (laughs) at like 4am being like, right, well, it says we can't start sleep training till two weeks. What do I do in the next four days? I was like that with sleep. Um, And then, uh, and then I just, I don't know, I just fell down an an internet rabbit hole of, yeah, I went to a, a, a workshop at a sleep trainer's house and she told me a lot of really silly things that weren't true about what I was yeah. doing. And um yeah, I just that was my experience. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I mean,
1: I think that's so helpful for people to know that's sort of like the main, you know, way that or the main like information, right? It's a very common story, right? That people are yeah. getting. I think the The other story is, it's getting louder. The voices are getting louder. There's more happening, Um, but you really have to dig for it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I also always say to people too, when you are making an informed choice, right. To try to see what all the options are and see what feels best to you. And also like the, all of the claims, you know, that you are hearing through all the different sleep training sources, like there's no source of any of them. They're yeah. just, they're practice-based, not evidence-based. They're just like, oh, people have done this, so you should do it. Yeah. There's no source, right? And so that's something to be looking for as a parent too, right? Like, what is this based on? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, I think it's so easy to get into that, like, comparison trap as well, isn't it? Of people of oh, yeah. around you and, and one thing that works for them. Why does it work for them? Why does it not work for me? For sure, you know,
1: why because yeah, when you are sleep training when you're not sleep training mm. your life looks really different yeah. right and so you're like oh am I a sucker
0: <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah but then you see something happened and I realized at some point when I don't know at some point when my my son was a toddler that I looked around at my friends that had been sleep training mm-hmm. and those that hadn't and i couldn't see any difference between how any of them were sleeping anyway yeah that yeah. for me for me the, the the biggest issue I have with sleep training is that I think it makes these really bold claims mm-hmm. and I don't really think I don't think it's as effect half as effective as most people would have you believe it is
1: yeah for sure for some families it doesn't work at all and parents yeah. really need to know that because if it's not working for their baby you really don't want to keep doing it Yeah, and also, um, yeah, it's short-term gains, yeah. right? Like it's, it's like, oh, the four month, the dreaded four month change in sleep. It's like, do this really, really drastic thing that like, we don't really know what the long-term effects are of. Um, and then once your baby starts to speak, parents don't, you know, continue with it usually. Right. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's very interesting that, that bit of it.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. I'm not saying that I I do recognize that sleep training does ostensibly work, you know, and and that's why people promote it, you know, but like it's it's a short term gain. And so uh, I I think something that is like kind of thrown at a lot of gentle, holistic or whatever kind of word you want to describe what I do, you know, uh, the non sleep training sleep people yeah that we don't understand the evidence we don't understand the science it's all a bit like wishy-washy but you're a neuroscientist so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's really nice to to hear
1: yes I definitely do understand (laughs) uh the science of all of it right like the studies of that have been done on sleep training that say they you know work and I put that in air quotes like um have a lot of flaws um the population sampling is flawed and the, the measures, the outcome measures are flawed as well, right? So um, almost all of them are parent report. And so the objective studies we do have, they're not many of them, but there's a few that have used videos and movement measurements um, show that it was sleep training. Sleep training has absolutely no effect on infant sleep. If, if anything, maybe one study showed it changed um, the amount of overnight sleep, it increased it by 16 minutes.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so babies are still waking up. They're not sleeping more. They're, they're just not signaling right when they're sleep, when sleep training in air quotes works. And so the studies that use only parent report say, yeah, my baby sleeps the whole night. They never wake up. They're sleeping longer but that's because the baby's not signaling to the parent. Right. And so that's the measure that changes um, the baby's sleep doesn't. And so that helps families understand, you know, all the fear-mongering tactics of like, you have to sleep train, or they'll never learn to sleep or their sleep will be unhealthy, or they won't release growth hormone or like all of these other, you know, wild claims that have no basis in reality. Um, understanding that, you know, sleep training actually doesn't change the sleep whatsoever um, can really help you know, with those
0: myths. That's, I think the, the message that makes me the angriest. And I see yes. it so much right now. Yeah. Is the, the health angle of sleep and how important consolidate, so like, and I've again, consolidated in air quotes, yeah. um, sleep is for babies and the, yeah, terrifying parents about their growth, their development. Yeah. It, it's really dangerous.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, my heart is racing right now as well. Like it's very scary and it makes me really sad too. And, um, angry, like it's, um, anything you're doing to scare parents into doing something is very manipulative. Yeah. Um, if a parent, uh, I'm a parent as well. Like if you were going to, you know, scare me into doing anything for my child, like that would be like a very uncomfortable place to be right in so many ways. Um, And it's a chronic fear that's instilled in parents because reality doesn't match the expectations of this, you know, message, right. Because you've got a baby who needs to be close, who needs co-regulation, who needs, you know, to wake up and feel comfort to go back to sleep. And you have these expectations of like, all of that's unhealthy, right. Mm -hmm. And so parents are put into like really chronic, you know, stress and anxiety and fear cycles, Um, because these two things don't match up and it's just, you know, there's a lot of words I could use to describe that. And it's just, it's awful in my
0: opinion. Yeah. And there's absolutely no evidence is there that, um, fewer signals or wakes at night correlates with any kind of improved development or health or et cetera, you know, in infancy. No, no, not at all.
1: No. Um, no it's the opposite we actually babies wake for reasons um their needs don't stop at you know at, at night they they need to have arousals um you know as a, pre- as a prevention for sids um and many babies like need to feel the presence of a parent to to have different quality of sleep right so solitary sleep and uh, the brain architecture that happens in solitary sleep and in sleep, you know, in the parents' bedroom is different, right? And so it's actually quite the opposite, right? Like putting babies isolated in a room without anyone responding to them, that is actually, um, you know, I right, say so I want to say it in the right way, like that is is potentially risky for the mm-hmm. infant brain and their brain development. It's not the other way around. And I can say for certain, Having a baby be responded to at night and be in the same room as their parents for at least a year up to three years because infancy is three years long, we know that that um, provides a lot of enrichment to mm. the infant brain, so we know that that's a really good thing to do
0: yeah uh, and so when you say um enrichment to the infant brain like could you could you i don't know i'm I'm obviously not a neuroscientist here, Greer, but <laughs> <laughs> about about everything you've just said. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm def- happy to expand on it. Um, so I'm actually in a deep dive of all this research right now. I, Cause I am, I'm finally writing my book, which was like my dream. When I left the lab, I was like, I'm going to leave the lab. I'm going to write a book for parents and everyone will know this amazing information. So the good news is I am writing it and I'm deep in this. Uh, concept right now and so the way that I conceptualize it is that babies can we, we essentially want to bait like create the situations that bathe their brain in like what I call like a nurture bath mm-hmm. so like our brains are always releasing hormones and neurotransmitters and you can think of it like the brain sitting in a bath with like different ingredients in the bath right and so When babies are close, responded to, um, Mm -hmm. when we play with them, um, you know, when we're nurturing, whatever, you know, the definition of nurturing is, their brains are releasing and the parent brain too, because the baby and parent brain don't exist alone, right? They exist together in a dyad. And so when we are nurturing, both our baby's brains and our brains get, uh, are sort of bathed in things like oxytocin which reduces our signal to noise ratio. So we can really focus on each other. It, it releases dopamine, which is rewarding and feels good. It just opiates that are released endorphins that are released. All these feel good hormones that like reduce anxiety, reduce depression, reduce fear and worry, increase joy and um, really grow the baby's brain and their stress system to be really resilient for life. Right. And so the Infants, the infant years, those first three years, was an opportunity to, as much as possible, be bathing the baby's brain and our parent brains in these, you know, hormones like oxytocin and all the other ones that are associated with it to, you know, both change our baby's brain and influence their plasticity towards life, lifelong wellness and also our parent brains, because the parenthood time is also a huge time for neuroplasticity as well. So we can actually a lot of like healing of our own stress systems and our own mental health in the the period of of parenthood
0: oh that's so interesting
1: yeah
0: um yeah yeah I hadn't I'd never thought of it like that as well about yeah neuroplasticity from my Mm -hmm. point of view Mm -hmm. um and I think I I was just thinking listening to that you know what what would your advice be then for someone who felt like they had gone down a route of more separation than connection for Mm -hmm. whatever reason you know that might be that they were apart from their child due to illness or you know circumstances being their control or perhaps they were influenced by a particular baby book or you know approach they've gone down the sleep training route and they now hear that and feel you know conflicted
1: I mean so many of the parents I work with I mean have been in that situation right like that is totally understandable like I mean that's like the default for parents right yeah it's only if you come across something different that things will be different so like net like none of this is like the parent's fault or the parent's responsibility right this is our society and our cultural influences that um that's what's you know where to put the blame it's never on a parent for anything so like if this is you and you've done something and now you're feeling bad about it like have compassion for yourself you're doing the absolute best you can with the resources you have right and if those resources change then we can change as well um mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the first thing to know is, you know, the zero to three period is pretty long. So if, you know, you hear this information within that time, like we, you can still be building those resilient circuits in your baby's brain, right? Like, um, so that's important. So you can always change your approach, right? And there's always room for repair. Um, so if, you know, the changes happen under three or under two, Even under two is ID more even more uh, impactful. That will influence that stress, the stress circuits that we're building directly. And if it's later, that's also okay, right? Like we can always go back and be more responsive. We can, if our child is older, we can talk to them about it and say, you know, like this was the information I had, this is what I did. Um, I was doing it, you know, under the you know, if, you know, assuming the information that all this was true and I was doing the best I could and really saying, like, I wish I was more response. Now that I know new, new information, I wish I was more responsive then. And so learning to rebuild that relationship of responsiveness is, is important, right? Like being there for ch- children's emotions, being there for their stress, you know, um, all this kind of stuff can happen later on as well lo- as, as well as those conversations of repair yeah um and though they the, the, that kind of stuff still will act on circuits that um incorporate the emotional brain and the stress brain that's building in infancy but it will be in different areas right like we sh- we have to remember even like our adult brains parenthood parents are not are also really really plastic and able to heal right there's so many different healing modalities therapies that we can engage our brain in mm-hmm. and and these are all creating new brain circuitry on this circuitry that did develop in infancy and so yeah absolutely like healing is always possible
0: Yeah. yeah I think um I think the knowledge of like the the power of oxytocin and love and nurture and dopamine and all these things I think to reframe these things as so powerful and and um transformative in a a child's brain is so important because I think too often parents are told they are too weak too nurturing and that to build resilience children need to go through tough experiences Mm -hmm. otherwise they'll never learn
1: yeah for sure
0: Um, yeah it's
1: it's like empowering parents mm -hmm. and you know in their you know their responsive and, and nurturing behaviors because they're so not supported or valued or celebrated in any, in most spaces. Right. And so that's my goal, right. Is to try to make a space to like, be like, you're doing something amazing. Like, yes, you're probably, your napping baby is, you know, on your body for many, many hours of the day. That does don't, don't say at the end of the day, I did nothing at the end of the day, say I'm building my baby's brain I'm forming millions of connections per second in my baby's brain and helping and helping them grow um so so yeah it is a huge shift because for many 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 years we have been told that that's doing nothing and that's absolutely not true
0: yeah yeah I hate that narrative of the weak yeah the weak parents the yeah uh the the martyr and you're just creating problems for yourself but then there's also this conflict isn't there it's because we also live in a culture that doesn't you know support that kind of parenting you know with people being back at work or um yeah not receiving the support they need I suppose to to, to be a truly nurturing parent I don't know what your thoughts on that are because on that yeah topic. for sure I mean the thing the thing that I always battle with is you know,
1: we, we want to be slowed down, be nurturing all these things. And we're also still living in the society that we're living in, right? Like people go back to work. Um, you know, I went back to work. I had a, you know, relatively longer time. I I went back to work when my baby was about eight months old part-time. Um, but many people go back earlier than that. Sometimes even if you have one year of, of parental leave, you know, that your baby's still a baby, right? Um, Some people have four weeks, right? It's like all over the place. But that, I I think the narrative with that currently is, oh, well, if you're going back to work, then you should act like your baby doesn't, shouldn't need you because you have to prepare them for that separation, right? Some people are like, oh, should I stop feeding from my body if my baby's going back to work? Should I stop responding so that they like get toughened up or like, or get prepared or whatever it is? Um, and so that is just so off from you know my recommendations up from based on the science is really like the quality time you have with your baby, whatever time that is, to be responsive, to be nurturing, um, that is still obviously building your baby's brain. It is not about quantity; it's about quality. And we, you know, we know mostly from like therapeutic um disciplines like psychoanalysis parent infant psychotherapy kind of work um the you know a high quality relationship with the caregiver doesn't like even if it's a working parent um is so protective and so important for the brain so your job is still you know is still making a huge impact right um and so that's really important to you know whenever you can be with your baby to be nurturing and responsive. Um, And then the other part of it is to, you know, we have to do a bit of advocacy, right? Like try to find childcare that will also, you know, be in your style, like in your style, right? Like if you do have a choice, not all of us do. Some of us have like one family member who's going to take care of our baby or one Child care spot where we live, right. We don't all have a choice, but if we do, we can meet several people and say, how do you respond to babies when they're stressed? Um, and we, you know, we want, we want the most responsive environment possible, right. Because that environment also has an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also put those expectations down. Like I'm, you know, I'm paying this for the service and I can say to the people who are running it I expect you to um use co-regulation when my baby is distressed and not to leave them on their own
0: yeah Yeah, Yeah. totally and I think as well you know being as honest as you can be as well with your peers about how your child and where your child Mm -hmm. (laughs) sleeps and and how they feed and how they behave and and that can feel quite scary can't it especially if you feel like you're the weird one who doesn't put your baby down for an apple. You know? yeah. um, it's also amazing. So many families,
1: including myself, are like terrified that their baby won't sleep at daycare. Like I was so scared. My son had a nanny at home until he was two. And then when he was two, he went to school and I was like, there's no way he's going to sleep there. And I was like, you know, just the same as every parent, even with all the information I had, I probably needed my own like sleep professional to be working with me at the time um and the person running the school is lovely and she was like I'll tell t- I'll text you like every minute and like you know what's happening and we're gonna rub his back and we're not gonna leave him alone at all um yeah and he was sleeping there since day one right so uh, which is really the story for most babies right and I think for sleep especially I think a lot of um childcare centers, you know, are relatively nurturing, you know, they'll, even though, even if the babies are sleeping on their own, they're going to rub a baby's back or rock them, um, or do what they need to do to get them comfortable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So from, can you explain then because yeah, this is something that I get, like one of the most common questions, like co- concerns that people come to me with is the, yeah, impending childcare and my child won't sleep anywhere without yeah. And I was exactly the same. And yeah. And then my son was absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. would be that really annoying thing of, you know, at nursery, he would like, they had these little floor beds and he would just walk over to them and put himself to sleep quite happily. Yeah. And at home, you know, he's still. At, you know he's nearly three and he obviously like he's still very much supported to sleep at home so oh yeah day, despite, uh, my same. yeah just by you know self-settling or whatever at nursery for yeah like yeah. nearly two years so um can you explain from from a neurological point of view because the, the narrative is that they have to learn these skills and it's something we have to teach them and if we don't you know but obviously yeah. that's not what's happening so Yeah. It's a really good question. I don't think I've done a deep dive. So they're mostly
1: (laughs) guesses. Like I haven't done a deep dive into the research, but I think one part is the pack mentality at school. Like, um, you know, humans, we evolved in groups and to cooperate in groups. And when, when kids are together with other kids and everyone's doing an activity It's sort of like a different type of learning. That's kind of my hypothesis where it's like, you know, we're all going to, they eat, usually eat better, you know, eat more diverse foods at school. They go to sleep really easily. And I think that has an impact on it. It's a different kind of social hive mind kind of effect going on. I think like, uh, yeah, um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is, um, you know, the, the other related to this is like, you know, sometimes kids have like a meltdown at home, right. At the end of the day. Right. And so they're safer expressing these like big emotions to, to parents and their vulnerability to their parents. And so might you know, at school, they might be able to like use, you know, the developing regulation that they have to kind of, um, you know, stay more even and, you know, go to sleep on their own and all this kind of stuff. But, um, when they're home, that's a comfortable place to like be letting out their worries and fears and, and stress and, and, um, you know, their preference is to be hugged to sleep. Right. Um, and so, yeah, just be, it's a great point. Cause some people are like, well, just cause they, now I know they can do it <laughs> at school. So why can't they do it at home? And it's like, well, they, you know, we, we really don't want to expect anyone to not need their loved ones, right? Like le- leaving your loved ones to feel most comfortable is like a very natural beneficial thing for all humans of every age um so yeah so I think it's it's does that answer the question those are kind of my guesses on it
0: no I think I think I yeah that makes so much sense and I think you know for me for example if I'm having a really busy day and running around I could kind of last the day on like I don't know a banana and like running and eating a sandwich running down the street but it would be better if I would have a more enjoyable time if I was sat down eating a meal mm-hmm. you know I don't know surrounded by people I loved like I don't know I just think yeah. that you know fine you're at nursery there's a different thing you're, you go 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 and then you come home and it's like oh, okay here I am this is my safe place now I yeah. can be I can let it all out for I- sure that makes sense I mean my son's also at an outdoor school so he like they go on a
1: massive hike every day and so I think he also just like falls down in exhaustion to sleep. Yeah, Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Which
1: is part of the yeah. deal. Um, but that's it too, actually. It could be more exhausting both mentally and physically, right? Like,
0: yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's you know, they're not in an emotional re- like in the the attachment they have with their caregivers is obviously nothing like what they have with their primary caregivers as, as a parent. So, you know, yeah. it is a less, it's not as an emotional separation, is it? It's like, yeah, you know, um. I definitely, my son doesn't nap at home anymore yeah. but at childcare. And I think maybe this is just me overthinking it, but I often think he just wants to maximize our time together. You know?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I miss my son's exactly the same.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> even honestly, I tell you, sometimes we take him out and we exhaust, him. you know, and it's like fresh air for like five hours in the morning. And he's like digging up, dirt and all of that good stuff and then I'm like surely you're gonna nap now yeah yeah
1: no No. that's too much FOMO
0: yeah yeah or he's just really trying to test our boundaries and at nursery they've got much clearer ones I don't know yeah
1: that's true (laughs) they do as well they do have that as well yeah
0: Yeah.
1: but I like to think I like parents to think about like daycare um and childcare in general is like an extension of like the village that's taking care of our kids right like they can learn different things there. They're exposed to different people, different styles. Um, And, you know, it's an extension of like us, right? Like as as like the caregivers in their life. Um, So that kind of like, I mean, I think that helps a lot of parents who feel guilty about it too, right? They're like, oh, I wish I was with my kid all the time. And that, you know, my head didn't have to work, go back to work so quickly. And it's like, yes, and, you know, it takes three or four people to take care of a child, right? Like it's, it's a big, big job and that's okay. And kids can form relationships with multiple caregivers.
0: Oh, that's really, that's made me feel much happier just hearing that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I tell myself that all the time.
0: (laughs) The Sleep Like a Baby podcast is supported by The Octopus Club the online marketplace where you can buy sell and give away baby and kid stuff without any hassle if your home is piling up with toys clothes and bits of kit that your little one no longer uses the octopus club offers an easy environmentally friendly way of selling or donating things to other families and if you're on the hunt for high quality second hand goods this is the place for you honestly the stuff on there is gorgeous check them out on instagram or go straight to their website theoctopusclub.com, to sign up today So what I wanted to ask was about the fear that if you're doing X, Y or Z now, you'll have to be doing it for years and years and years to come. Oh, so yeah. if you let your baby, toddler, preschooler into your bed at night now, or yeah. you support them to fall asleep or whatever that looks like that someone has told you, like, oh, be careful. Yeah. From a neurological point of view, you know, can you just clear that up? about the, the fear the rod fear and back kind of fear
1: yeah it's it's really great I mean I think there's different stages to it which is kind of something sort of new a, a newer idea that I've been thinking about um so yeah I think in in infancy it's about like for my, my style is like the path of least resistance um that makes that is comfortable for both baby and parents right so you know, often the way that parents are starting, you know, is feeding to sleep or rocking to sleep or a combination maybe with different caregivers. Um, And then that can move to like, you know, cuddling to sleep or or whatever it is. Um, I think the biggest lesson is like anything can change. Like it can always change. So like that idea that you have to do something forever, it's just not true at all. And we can make changes in like a really gentle way as well. That's like minimally stressful for babies and parents who can do it really gradually. So, I mean, I think if something's working for you do it until it's not like Mm -hmm. I fed my baby to sleep um, for like two and a half years and then it wasn't working. And then I was like, I don't like this anymore. And so then we changed to hugging to sleep. Um, I think a big one is like the rocking Mm -hmm. um or or holding a baby to sleep because then parents backs start to get exhausted and babies get too heavy um and then you can always transition to again like probably cuddling to sleep or something Mm -hmm. like that um so that's the first thing is like as long as, as it's working for you in the moment like go for it until it's not and then you know you can always change it and then the other thing is like oh that you have to do it forever it's just not true right like babies and children um, they like to do things for themselves. They're like, I do it right. Like I want to, yeah, for this, I want to do this myself. I want to dress myself. Right. Um, it's the same with sleep, right. They, um, they will get there when they get there and it's just way longer than what we expected. Right. It's not a few months. It's, it's at least a couple years, um, you know, or longer. And, and the message, the other message there, that's really important to get out. I kind of wanted to say it earlier as well is like, the more, the more we make safe. We more the more we make sleep feel safe mm-hmm. and comfortable in those early years. It's creating that association of safety and comfort, and you know, sleep as like a healthy, comfortable thing to do. That is promoting the independent sleep later, right? Like that's promoting all of it later. Um, trying to force baby to do something that they're not comfortable with. Um, you know, could be risky for it, right? It can create, you know, more dependence on caregivers later into, into childhood. Um, so so that's important for people to know.
0: Yeah, it's a long-term investment, you know, that, you, yeah. that I think there's this narrative that by, by that nurturing behaviours are a waste of your time or it's a, something that you, a cycle you can't break. Mm-hmm. And actually you are playing the long game By showing
1: up. Yeah. Yes. Because, you know, we, you know, I've worked with so many families and, you know, from my own friends and family experience, like when people are pushed to be, to sleep alone, to, you know, sleep training, all these other things in childhood, infancy and childhood. I wish there was a study on it. I haven't seen one yet, but like people are developing insomnia, fear of bedtime. They go to sleep really late because they avoid going to bed. They, you know, have anxiety about sleep in the night. Um, And, and that's, they do have to do quite a lot of work to change that, you know, as they're, as they're older too. And the last thing I wanted to say about all of it as well, about the nurturing sleep in the early years is um, it's ridiculous, in my opinion, to want any, to train or influence any human being to not need other human beings. Yeah. It's completely against our biology. Like we are soothed by other human beings forever. And so trying to teach a child not to need someone else when they're needing them, like is really an, a very unhealthy um, pattern to create for a person. Cause when they grow up, we want our children to seek out us and we want our adolescents to seek out peers. They actually get more comfort from peers in adolescence uh, regulation. Um, we want our adult children to seek out friends and loved ones when they're scared or stressed. Um, that is a healthy trajectory for humanity, it is not healthy to isolate yourself when you're stressed or scared as a human. So that's the other part that, yeah. That is such
0: hard. an important message because, yeah, yeah so I, I, you might have seen I saw like a meme type thing on Instagram I've read it a few times about the mum who co-slept with her kids and they were always said oh be careful because you'll have a teenager still in your bed and then when her son was a teenager one night he came home was in a really bad mood we didn't want to talk but then later in the night he came to her bed gave her a cuddle and talked to her about what was happening and and she was like I didn't realize actually that i we did I did want that teenager to come and you know it doesn't right. have to be said, but you know, that she had created that relationship and that trust and that intimacy that they that yeah, that his his go-to wasn't to shut off, but it was to come back to her. And I think that's really powerful.
1: It really is. Yeah. I mean, that is my goal in parenting, is for you know, to maintain like that relationship with my child so that I can be a safe person for them, you know, yeah. for their life. Um and, and that you know that starts when they're when they're really little. I think the opposite starts um, you know, when they're little and they are, you know, I don't want to be so judgmental to be judgmental, but when they are sort of pushed to be more independent or pushed to be solitary and all these kinds of things, like it can um, make it feel unsafe to go, you know, to parents for for comfort later.
0: Yeah. actually something I was going to ask you is is if you know a parent listening to this has a really really sensitive child you know mm-hmm. perhaps an orchid and sometimes there can be a worry that they've created that you know um they've made them also and they've made them sensitive um and that's so de- I mean it's it's such demanding work obviously looking caring for a highly sensitive child absolutely i mean hugely rewarding as well but you you know it's also extremely uh, t- it takes it out of you um you know what would you say to that parent
1: yeah i mean i think it's i'd be like let's celebrate you yeah. <laughs> and get you as much support and you know time to recoup you know, and, and fill yourself, you know, as possible and really celebrate it because that's just not true. Right. Like my, my brother and I were both orchid children and my mom got that criticism, you know, so I, I understand that. And I heard it as a child, right? Like my brother's four years younger than me, like, Oh, he's like that because of you. <laughs> and, um, you know, my idea with this and it just generalizes to all babies is when they show when they're experiencing stress, that's a physiological um, reaction in their bodies. They, are, they have high stress and they require adults to co-regulate them in order to lower their stress. They don't have any other route to lower stress, right? We have to lend our brains to our babies, our mature brains, in order for them to recover from stress. And so if your baby is more on the lower needs, you know, end of the spectrum and more easygoing baby, they're not going to need as much co-regulation. They're not going to need to borrow your brain as much. But if you have a baby who is highly sensitive, um, they're just, they are going to need you more. Right. And it's it, the, the reaction and going on inside is not different. Um, it's exactly the same. And so showing up and, and regulating them um, is necessary, no matter how many times it shows up in a person. Mm-hmm. So yeah you're doing a really good job and and again it's sometimes it's like the difference between an easy going baby and a highly sensitive baby it's almost like you're having you have triplets with a highly sensitive baby compared to right and so you're doing three times the work or maybe sometimes it's 10 times the work but um it pays off too because that baby's nervous system is, is is wired by your responding and every time you respond you're building more and more resilience and so that your baby's life is going to be you know enriched like forever from that responsiveness so it's very important and very hard and um and it's absolutely not causing it whatsoever
0: yeah it's such an important message isn't it and i think it just i think if your first child is highly sensitive it's just um really easy to compare to to others and mm-hmm. um, you know, why does one baby go down with like a little butt pat and a, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and mine, you know, rocking and singing and feeding and, you know, me standing on my leg and all of that stuff just to, you know, help them switch off for sleep. I know. And it's really
1: hard for parents because it's like, I think it's like one in 10 babies or something is, is on the highly sensitive end. And so a parent with a baby with that temperament is probably might not know any other parents who have babies of that temperament and highly sensitive you know babies they're like shunned sometimes because they're like the odd one out they're like oh why is your baby like that yeah and then and that and you know those kinds of parents and babies need the opposite reaction where it's like how can we include you right like they might not be able to go and sit in the coffee shop or sit in the baby group like other like like other families but maybe it's like oh let's you know this friend of mine, her baby's highly sensitive, like maybe I'll ask her, like, can we go on a walk together? Um, what can you do so that we can spend time together? So you're not isolated. Um, and um, and yeah, helping, helping support those families instead of sort of criticizing them and, and blaming them. And I think we need to make that shift, yeah. On my Instagram page I have, which is Nurture Neuroscience Parenting, I have a link there that um, can connect you to, you know, all of the ways that I'm educating and sharing information. So the biggest way is through my um, both infant sleep educator, no, it's not, no, that's the previous name, infant and family sleep professional course, which is a shorter course for people who are interested in educating you know, there are clients on, on biologically normal infant sleep. So anyone who's asked about that, right? Like doctors, midwives, doulas, um, chiropractors, body workers, right? Anyone who works with babies and might be asked about sleep. And the other is an infant and family sleep specialist program, which is a much longer, more intensive program, um, where you can train to be a sleep professional and work with families one-on-one and teach classes and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm offering right now. And then I will give a small preview. I am writing my book and it's going to be coming out in July 2023, which is very exciting. And yeah, stay tuned for that.
0: Yeah. And you're not currently working with with clients one-to-one, are you? Because obviously- No,
1: because of my book. I um, I have put that on hold so I'm referring my sleep clients to other people I've trained in the meantime and um yes I, I put a hold on that for the time being but that will come back eventually yeah yeah yeah
0: Yeah. do you, do you miss working with people one to one or I do I do I actually
1: take I people families that I've been supporting for a long time I'm still taking them on because they're sort of on- ongoing so I, I still really enjoy that so
0: yeah. um yeah yeah, yeah it's amazing isn't it and you just never stop learning and um yeah discovering more about about families and yeah every baby is so different aren't they
1: oh my goodness yes that is the best part of um of it is sort of like helping families figure out their you know their solution which is unique
0: yeah it would be yeah. really easy if there was one solution that would fit everyone yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That would be
1: really easy. But yeah, I mean the reason why it's not is because sleep is not isolated. Yeah. Like sleep is everything. It's relationship. It's um yeah, it's it's so many things. Mindset, right? Like it's there's so much to work with.
0: Yeah. It's not just overtiredness.
1: Yes. (laughs) Sometimes it is,
0: but not always. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um Great. Well, I mean, Greer, maybe we should leave it there because I'm, I'm aware of the time and I don't want to take up. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add in though, or? No, this was so lovely. Thank you so much for having me, Hannah. Oh, I've, yeah. I've, I've been lost in your words. I just love it so much. Oh, um, I mean, yeah, I could talk to you for like hours and hours and hours, but um, I will let you get, get on with your day. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. she just the absolute best I just love her so much (laughs) I'm so uncool about it but um so many things stood out for me I really loved when she was talking about how you know when that the idea that all I've done today is like cuddled and fed my baby or I'm not achieving anything you know and what what Greer said about like don't say I did nothing today I'm building my baby's brain like how how much do we lose that um amongst the busyness and the noise around parenting like how how I just wish we would um like recognize and, and and celebrate the hard work that parents and caregivers do for this really important you know nurturing um it's so important for the next generation and Yeah, I I think we can all beat ourselves up more and think that we should be learning a new language and, you know, acquiring new career skills and using our so-called, like, time off with a baby to do more. Because I suppose in our culture, we we value... Yeah, we value money and time and busyness over nurture and building relationships. Um, And also, I just... I suppose, on the subject of work as well. I also loved everything she said about childcare. I think that's a really interesting conversation. You know, why is it that babies and toddlers will sleep differently with, you know, a daycare setting or a nursery um, and then differently at home? Um, Hearing her, like, her take on it all was fascinating. And I think as well made me feel so much less guilty when she talked about your childcare setup being an extension of your village Um, because I'm a working parent and I have to work to keep a roof over my head and I absolutely feel guilty sometimes for not being a stay-at-home parent even though that's not even an option for me but even if it was I I think I would still feel guilty for working it's it's really complex isn't it? I'd love to know what you think anyway like did you feel like what stood out for you in that conversation did it reassure you also you know if you're someone who was a little shall we say like less responsive at times I know I certainly was like I tried like the whole sleep training thing with my son and um put a lot of pressure on myself to get him sleeping more independently I found it really reassuring to hear Greer talk about ways that we repair those ruptures and um how it's you know that neuroplasticity of the brain means that it's like it's if we make a what we perceive as a mistake or we do something that in hindsight we wish we hadn't how the brain isn't stuck there you know it's you you haven't broken your baby because you did some cry it out or some controlled crying you know we're always we're always nurturing we're always shaping our relationships with our children, they're always evolving. And I think that is such for me that's a really powerful takeaway and helps me be kinder to myself as a as a mother. So anyway, it was really lovely. It's so lovely to be um podcasting again. I've missed it so much and I can't wait to hear all of your thoughts. So come along, drop me a message on Instagram or you can email me and thanks again. Thank you so much for being here.